We need to set the stage for chapter 28 by coming back to chapter 15. And again, it's a familiar passage even in chapter 15. It's referenced as a lesson from which you can learn much about the consequences of disobedience. You need to keep that in mind. It's about the final fall of the man Saul, his final divine rejection as the king of Israel. And up to this point in chapter 15, Saul has been that primary character of this historical narrative from chapter 9 and following, having been anointed the first king of Israel. We need to remember also the other main character up to the point in this narrative in chapter 15, and that being Samuel, who was the last of the numerous judges of Israel. Samuel, as the last of these judges, is also a prophet and a priest, and it fell to him to anoint the first king of Israel, the man Saul. Three chapters up to this point in 1 Samuel have focused on Saul's rule as king, chapters 13, 14, and 15. And keep in mind that Saul's reign as king did not end as we studied back in April in chapter 15. Uh, his reign continued up through even what we're looking at this morning in chapter 28 before its tragic conclusion that we'll see in chapter 31. But Saul's rejection as king is finalized in chapter 15, that uh, his reign and his noble royal line would be cut off. You see in this chapter that Saul's disobedient rebellion, his refusal to trust or even demonstrate a trust in the living God through obedience finalizes his rejection as king. And I just want you to note the disobedient rebellion of Saul. The tragedy of Saul's life is that he did not learn from failure. Some of us have a hard time learning from our failures as well, struggling through life. Uh, from chapters 13 through 28, as the narrative progressed, we find failure added to failure as Saul walks as king. And the real problem with Saul seems to be that he had no true living relationship with the God of Israel. He has never brought a heart fully submitted to the God of Israel. Yes, he may go through the outward form. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He comes from a notable family, being recognized for their valor. But Saul seems to always be on the fringe of a true, living, and abiding relationship with God. Saul observes what God is doing. Sometimes, even in the presence of Saul's own eyes and ears, he sees God at work. God even uses Saul to accomplish his divine purposes. Yet, Saul does not live that life of consistent obedience to the living God. Saul's previous disappointment or disobedience you find back in chapter 13, if you turn back in verses 13 and following. And this is where he was told that his uh, life and his royalty would be a one-man dynasty. And the Lord has already revealed to Saul and his family that his line on the throne would not endure. You start in verse 8. Saul waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. The people were scattering from him. You recall that Saul becomes impatient and says, all right, give me the animals. I'll do what Samuel should be doing. I'll offer the sacrifices and overstepping the boundaries of king. You come to verse 13. Samuel comes to Saul and he says, what? You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Do note 
that it is simple obedience and a failure to do so that Samuel is calling out Saul for. I remember in chapter 13 that he was being confronted with a well-equipped Philistine army. It was overwhelming in size, and he became impatient. The army is upon me. I've got to offer these sacrifices and get the Lord's blessing and move on with the battle. Yet with an army, remember in the army of Israel, there was only two armed men with swords. Spears, that being Saul and his son Jonathan. The army of Israel was frightened. They were unraveling. They hid in the caves and holes in the ground under homes. And now Saul's disobedience in chapter 13 is not excusable, but as you look at it from our human perspective, you might say, it was disobedience in the face of overwhelming pressure. It's understandable, yet it is still disobedience, and God does not excuse Saul for it. Now, when you come back to chapter 15, Saul disobeys again in just the opposite kind of physical circumstances. Now, here, he in chapter 15, he's in the position of overwhelming victory crushing his enemies. He's triumphant from the beginning. And then he manifests his true character. His distrust in God, his disobedience toward God in this situation as well. You look at chapter 15, starting in verse 7. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. What was the problem? God had commanded them through Samuel, destroy everything. But they kept King Agag and took the best of the best alive back with them as spoils. So here we see Saul's disobedience committed Drop down to verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. I have obeyed, Saul says. Verse 14, but Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? Here we see Saul's disobedience rebuked. Continuing in verse 15, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep, oxen, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, stop talking. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. So Saul said, speak. Verse 17, Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I obeyed, I went. And have brought back Agag, the king of uh, Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, those people, they took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And what do we see in Saul once again? He is defending his disobedience and shifting the blame to those around him. 
Continues in verses 22 and 23, faithful words. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And I want you to note verse 23 as we jump into chapter 28 this morning. For rebellion, his disobedience, is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. The divine perspective of Saul's disobedience is very damning. In verse 24 and following, we see the divine rejection of disobedience Saul. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Saul was a man who feared man as opposed to fearing God. Verse 25, Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And note verse 27, as again this will come up this morning. As Samuel turns to go, Saul reaches out and sees the edge of his robe, and it tore And so Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor, who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Saul, you are rejected for your disobedience. Having set the stage, come now over to chapter 28 of 1 Samuel in your Bibles. One commentator helps us to look at this chapter in its larger setting and context and understanding the connection between chapter 27 and 29 on each side of chapter 28, considering the structure of these chapters as we come to the close of the book. Chapter 31 is the end of the book. Chapter 27, we saw David's dilemma with the enemies of God, and Ronaldo uh, a month ago went through this chapter detailing how David was hiding amongst uh, the Philistines in Gath and uh, Achish with King Achish and settled in Ziklag. His dilemma was that he was caught amongst the enemies, not as a prisoner, but as an exile from Israel. And how is he going to get out of that situation where he is with the enemies of the Lord who are about to go to war against Israel? And then chapter 28, we see Saul's dilemma as we'll look at this morning. As David was with the enemies of God, Saul, we'll find, is without the word of God. And as we continue then on to chapter 29 and 30, we'll see David's deliverance as we pick up with the events of chapter 27, as he is saved from the Philistines, and then chapter 31, we'll see Saul's downfall as he is destroyed by the Philistines. So David being rescued from the Philistines, Saul being destroyed by the Philistines. We should also note the skillful way in which the penman has wound our mental rubber band as tightly as, we, as he could by the end of chapter 28, verse 2. Chapter 28 speaks of and, and details for us David speaking with King uh, Achish of Gath. It came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And where is David? With the Philistines. Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. 
You can be an asset in our battle against Israel. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. And we come to the end of that passage at the conclusion of Ronaldo's sermon a few weeks ago, and the question may have remained, well, how did David ever get out of this mess? He is going to go with the enemies of Israel to fight against Israel? You may have been unable to settle your mind reading on. You had to see what happens to David. So you begin to read chapter 28, verse 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel lamented him and buried him. You've been tricked. The penman does not tell you what happened to David. You're left hanging in his literary snare until you pick up in chapter 29, where he answers your anxiety over David's dilemma. When considering the chronological order of events even, chapter 29, our next chapter, actually occurs before the chapter we're looking at this morning, chapter 28. If the penman had unfolded the story chronologically, the chapter order would have been chapter 27, 29, 30, coming back to 28, and then closing and concluding with chapter 31. And considering the geography, that might help us to understand the chronology of these events as we help to try to get our minds around them. In the back of your Bibles, you may find a helpful map showing the land of the 12 tribes. I want you to look at that just to uh, help give us some geographical context. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you might have some maps in the back. If not, I will be the prop. I am the map. Uh, don't sing the song, all you Dora Explorer fans, but I will be the map and help work you through this process. So if you look at your map, uh, what we need to focus on is the Jordan River Valley. That's me. My chest being Beth Shan or Beth, uh, Beth Shur, Beth Shen, Shen, Beth Shan. And my head being the Sea of Galilee. My arm is the Valley of Jezreel or Esdraelon that goes from the Jordan River and kind of works its way up to Mount Carmel, my fist, up on the Mediterranean Sea. And amongst this valley, there are many historical events that happen. Uh, in the book of Judges, we read of Barak and Deborah. The, there's a battle that occurs in this valley. It's a very strategic valley because in this valley, you know, Damascus is up over here over my left ear. There's a main trade route coming down from Damascus, down south of the Sea of Galilee to Beth Shan. And then from here, it follows that valley on up and then over from Megiddo, over the hills, and down south into uh, uh, the plains of Sharon and down into Egypt, then further down on your maps. So we come to chapter 27, and we see that David had fled to King Achish. And he's in Gath, way down on your maps, if you look down uh, in the southwest end of your map, uh, near the Mediterranean, really modern-day Gaza Strip. And this is where David had fled to King Achish in Gath. You might see that on your map before settling in nearby Ziklag. We're not 100% sure where Ziklag was, a small village where David and his men could settle uh, with their families for about a year. And you skip chapter 28 that we'll look at in a few minutes. And you come to chapter 29 where we find the Philistines having begun to gather and they're moving north up that plain of Sharon along the Mediterranean coast, along with David in tow with his men. And of course, they have their Philistine chariots and all their armament, thus they need to come up this flat ground by the Mediterranean coast. And they come to Aphek in the plain of Sharon, east of Joppa, if you see on your map there. 
at an assembly point for all the armies of Israel, or armies of Philistine armies to gather together. Here is where the Philistines send David and his men back to Ziklag, and we'll pick that up in chapter 29. While the Philistines continue on north uh, on this main trade route, the way of the sea, they come to Caesarea, and then they go over the hills and go northeast through Megiddo and into the Esdraelon Valley, also known as the Valley of Jezreel or Armageddon. This is the valley uh, that they're heading into. And of course, that valley that runs southeast from Mount Carmel down to Beth Shan on the Jordan River, south of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Philistines, they end up in Shunem that we're told in chapter 28, verse 4, in a valley there below where Saul and the Israelites had already set up camp. By the spring, which is in Jezreel, we read in chapter 29, verse 1. So you might see on your map Jezreel, or Mount Mora, or Mount Gilboa. Um, and uh, Shunem is at the base of Mount Mora. Uh, it's on the southern slope of the mountain. And across this valley, then we have the Israelites up on Mount Gilboa, Jezreel, by the spring of Jezreel. And so we have set for us the picture of the Philistine army having come into the valley and up uh, at the base of the hill uh, in the valley with all their chariots and the Israelites up on the high ground. They don't have chariots. What are we going to do? We need to survey the uh, battle, the enemy coming before us. Again, that provides Israel with uh, high ground to safely assess these parading Philistines gathering in the valley below. And again, just by these geographical notes of Chapter 28, verse 4, and chapter 29, verse 1, we see the penman providing some clues that he's reversed some order or inserted chapter 28, uh, a future event into the chronological order. Now, while the Lord delivers David from the Philistines and is sent back to Ziklag in chapter 29 for the events of chapter 30 in order to finally uh, destroy the Amalekites utterly, uh, as you might be able to see there in chapter 30. Uh, chapters 28 and 31 are concurrent events to chapters 29 and 30, and they provide some insight about the last two days of Saul's life. As we'll look at this morning, it's specifically this seance that Saul engages in with a medium in Endor to speak with and hear from Samuel and then his subsequent death the next day in battle that you can read about in chapter 31 and verse 1. Why do I go through all of this? Why would the penman pull such a chronological switcheroo on us? Why not finish this perfectly exciting story of David's peril in chapter 27 and give us the conclusion in 29 and 30? Why not go right into it? Why interrupt this sequence and bring in a yet future event in the life of Saul? Why is chapter 28 interjected here? And knowing or surmising some whys might help us consider the importance of this chapter. We have here an age-old literary device. We interrupt our regular programming to bring you this special news bulletin. Got your attention now, right? Why do that? Why interrupt this perfectly exciting story about the soon-to-be king, King David? Because at this time, there is something far more urgent for you and I to know. Matters of greater importance have the right to preempt our attention. 
So the penman uses chapter 28, specifically verses 3 through the end of the chapter, to interrupt this tension-filled story of David's dilemma to tell you of something of far greater importance, even though it's out of proper chronological order if we're thinking in a linear fashion. It's also possible that the penman may have done this to place David's dilemma in chapter 27 alongside and in contrast to Saul's dilemma in chapter 28. And we'll look at his dilemma this morning. So, as we come to chapter 28, the penman, he's saying, don't worry your head right now about David. You need to see something far more critical. I interrupt this narrative to tell you that there is something far worse than being caught among the Philistines, which is being cut off from all communion with God. So by selecting this sequence here in uh, this story, this historical Telling, the penman emphasizes that nothing is so utterly miserable than finding in the hour of greatest need that you had long ago placed yourself beyond the sound of God's voice. And now the only thing that Saul can hear, the sound of his inevitable death. Does this not put David's trial in proper perspective as we finish chapter 27 to put it in the proper light? David's trouble is no light one. He's caught among the enemies of God in chapters 27. How is he going to get out of here without fighting against his brothers in Israel? But Saul's dilemma is far worse. He's without a word from God. David's burden appears lighter when we see his trials in the proper context of Saul's dilemma. Now, this is not to lightly and flippantly disregard your own individual trials. A believer, I want to appeal to you to put your trials into context. They are real and they are trialsome and troublesome, but they need to be put in the proper context. You may be exhausted from work. Your employer may be giving you a raw deal, dealing unjustly, underhandedly with you. You may have lost your health or family troubles are beginning to crop up. But chapter 28 tells you there is a spiritual condition that is far worse than your physical circumstances. Do you realize what a solace it is in the face of all your losses, all your pressures, all your disappointments, all your failures, to have access to the throne of grace and the smiling face of God through prayer and his word that we have copies of even today. What a blessing that is. Do you realize that all you have suffered is not nearly so tragic as the one who moans, God has turned away from me? I'm not telling you uh, that you should be ashamed of yourself or your current physical trials, but I am uh, also not telling you to stop weeping and crying out to God in your troubles. That is a right thing to do, to call out to Him. But I do want to tell you to keep the right perspective about your current multifaceted trials and consider it all joy, abiding in Christ. And this morning, as we continue our study here, We get into chapter 28. The Lord gives us a glimpse into the unrepentant and rebellious heart of Saul, detailing his last night on earth, his last few hours, not even really 24 hours on earth. Saul continues his rebellion against God, his justification of his own sin, his blame shifting, which again, even as we saw, began back in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And here we find God righteously silent toward the aging and yet rebellious King Saul. 
So as we're in chapter 28, we're going to about to read of some strange events. There's a witch, a pagan medium, ends up calling the prophet Samuel up from the grave, who in turn rebukes Saul's disobedience and warns him that death is near. This is a unique chapter of the Bible. Again, this pagan medium should have been put to death in Israel by our own admission, as we'll see in a few moments. It actually brings up Samuel from the grave to bring a message to Saul from the Lord, whom Saul has spurned. So we start in verse 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. We're given two important facts, one we're reminded of and one we learn new. The events that take place here in the following verses, we're reminded that Samuel was dead and were recorded for us back in chapter 25 and verse 1, the death of Samuel, how he had died some chapters ago. So he had been dead for some time by the time we come to chapter 28. We learn of a new important fact, that Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. Now while this looks out of place, we just broke off from the news of pending war with the Philistines and David's dilemma with Achish caught in the middle. We need to keep in mind as we near chapter 38 that the penman is preparing us for Saul's death and the looming Philistine battle. Look at chapter 28, verses 4 and 5. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together and they camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Remember what we read in chapter 15 about Saul becoming fearful. We know some bad decisions are about to be made. So the Philistines have gathered their armies in Shunem in the valley below the Israelites. Again, they're up against the back of uh, Mount Mora. The Israelites are up against and on Mount Gilboa, valley in between. And from Saul's vantage point, he looks down and he sees assembled this overwhelming force. And he crumbles once again at his apparent dilemma. It's obvious to Saul that the armies of Israel are not going to effectively do battle down in the valley against the Philistine chariots. Unless, of course, there's some divine intervention. Anybody got a lucky genie lamp I can rub or a rabbit's foot? Saul thinks the Lord is that means. Saul realizes the serious situation, the likely crushing defeat that awaits him and his men. What do we have in verse 6? When Saul inquired of the Lord, considering the pending battle, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Of all the ways that God normally communicated to his people, Saul tried every one of them, but there was no response. And so what does any logical man do? Well, as one who is continuing to operate as a man in rebellion against God, he decides to go elsewhere, even to the use of demonic means, if he has to, to get an answer. And if he can't get an answer from the Lord, he'll try to contact the last godly man he knew, Samuel, yet through the wrong means, through a medium. And we consider Saul's character, some of his previous statements. You take them in isolation, and one could think that Saul was a converted or a godly man. But an emotional experience followed by a period of remorse, even as we saw back in chapter 15, sometimes known as the foxhole conversion. I'm in trouble, Lord. I'm yours. Oh, things are good. I'll get back to you later, Lord. 
This is not necessarily genuine repentance. And in Saul's case, given the pattern of his life, he remains disingenuous as he seeks out the Lord. Look at verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, as they're up on Mount Gilboa, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and acquire of her. His servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Here we have in verse 7, Samuel faced with God's absence. But in contrast to Saul, sorry, Saul, faced with God's absence, a believer is concerned with God's absence rather than with a lack of insight for his or her current problem. Others, however, may be more concerned with guidance than with knowing the guide. That's where Saul is in this point in the narrative. And Saul, like many others, maybe perhaps you and I at times in our lives, had to have guidance. I need an answer, Lord. Not out of a love for God, but for fear of making a mistake. Saul's quest should have been to face Yahweh, not to seek Samuel. His need was not for information, but for communion. Not so much to prepare for battle, but to recover God's presence. Saul, it seems, wanted the results of God's favor more than he wanted God or a relationship with him. Another way to say that is he wanted all the benefits without the obligations. Oh, well, I have to give up sin in my life to live obediently to the Lord? Yes, yes you do, but you're not missing out. Satan's deception, it is a deception. You are gaining so much more when you set aside your sin and follow Christ. In essence, Saul is about to go to an instrument of Satan. He can't get an answer from God. He knows that the mediums were destroyed. Verse 3 told us that he had removed them from the land. Uh, and also down in verse 9, the woman herself that they do find, who is a medium, says, You know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. It's amazing how the delusion of sin can so drastically change a man's affections. His sin is so caught up to him. He has no affection for the Lord. He just wants some benefits, some blessings. But he's willing to go to great lengths, even disobedient lengths, to get his answer. We see that Saul had attempted to follow Leviticus chapter 20, verse 27. Now a man or woman who is a medium or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. And yet, Saul remains willing, when expedient, to ignore God's word. Also in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 and following, there shall not be found among you anyone who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things, God winks and nods. No. Whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. You do these things or participate in these things, God considers you detestable. Saul has done what he could to get rid of the mediums and spiritists from the land, but that doesn't seem to have come from any kind of godly conviction. It's as if Saul acts at one time to do the right thing, but again, under pressure and under the fear of man, he resorts back to and embraces his old ways of pragmatism. He's desperate for an answer. 
Well, maybe there's one medium that I didn't remove from the land. Maybe she can get me word from Samuel to help me. So Saul's men tell him of a medium at Endor, usually referred to as the witch of Endor, more familiar to us, where she resided. The king's most trusted men, they're aware of where they can find one of these witches, and they haven't gotten rid of her yet. You know, you may rid the land of most of them, but you never know when you're going to need one. Uh, These men probably knew Saul quite well, and knowing that he could change his mind at any moment, and maybe want to consult a witch. So we'll keep one just in case, maybe. Who knows? Verse 8 continues on, Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes, and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. Now keep in mind the nearby Philistines. They're at the base of Mount Mora, Shunem. It is surmised that Endor is around the backside of that hill. Saul has to come down, cross the valley, skirt around the Philistine army, around their campment, around the mountain, around Mount Mora to get to uh, Endor to visit this medium. We see how and why he has to disguise himself. You can imagine the enemy scouts out looking for the Philistines, uh, looking for any tactical advantage that they might gain over Israel. And again, just looking at the geography to see where Saul had to come down, go around to try and get to this medium. He considered the risk of skirting around this Philistine camp just to arrive at Endor a worthwhile risk. I got to have an answer. He wanted that answer bad. And of course, the king who had been purging the land of these necromancers can't just go in as a king or he risks scaring away the very medium he seeks. So Saul goes in disguise like a traveler, takes only two bodyguards with him making sure they can slip by these Philistine scouts to reach the medium under the dark of night. Look back now at chapter 28, verse 9. Then the woman, but the woman said to him who shows up, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? The medium is rightly afraid perceiving the potential for a federal entrapment operation here. We continue in verse 10. Saul vowed to her by the Lord, interesting, saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. She doesn't yet know this disguised man is Saul, but here's a person who swears by Yahweh that no punishment shall come upon her for doing what Saul asks and what Yahweh forbids. How remarkable it is that Saul comforted the woman by swearing by the name of Yahweh, Israel's God. Here's yet another sign of Saul's hardened spiritual condition. In order to violate God's law and ensure protection to an occultist under God's condemnation, Saul vows in the Lord's name. In fact, uh, if you consider Saul's oath invoking the Lord to grant immunity to the one who broke the Lord's command, it turned God against himself. Such an oath was not only foolish, but actually blasphemous. Look at verse 11. And then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? Rightly assured, she says, All right, let's do this. And Saul says, Bring up for me, Samuel. And here's yet another twist in the contorted plot. Though Saul breaks both God's law and his own prohibition, it is yet God's servant that he seeks. Saul knows and believes the truth that salvation can only come from God, the God against whom he has hardened his own heart. 
So if God will not speak to Samuel, if God will not speak to Saul, Saul will seek to raise the spirit of one whom God does speak, Samuel. What a dreadful state of affairs to recognize the need for truth from God while being too hardened to come to God himself. We see the spiritual desperation today in some of our family members, neighbors, classmates, coworkers. They don't want and they cannot pray to God, but they do seek out your prayers. Oh, do pray for me. You've got an in with God. But I don't want any obligations or responsibilities to your God. What should such a person do to gain direct access to the mercy of God? Well, the answer is to heed the call of Jesus Christ by bringing the burden of your sin to his cross and there gaining confidence to draw near to the throne of grace and thus receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, as we read in Hebrews 4, verse 16. Bring up Samuel for me, verse 11. Now verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. We don't know exactly what happens here. Saul asks to have Samuel brought up from the grave. Next thing you know, Samuel appears to this woman, and she is in horror. This is truly Samuel. There is no trickery. This is not the medium's familiar demon disguised as Samuel. This is the real Samuel up from the grave. Her terror is likely tied to the appearance of a new spirit, unfamiliar to her, different from her previous deceptions. Questions naturally arise. Did the medium actually make contact with a living spirit being? And if so, was it really the prophet Samuel? While this matter is not likely to be settled to everyone's satisfaction, the following observations can be made just from the text itself. First, the plain statement of the Hebrew text is that she did, in fact, see Samuel, when she saw Samuel. Second, the medium reacted to Samuel's appearance as though it was a genuine and terrifying experience. She cried out with a loud voice. Her strong reaction also suggests that Samuel's appearance was unexpected. Perhaps this was the first time she had ever actually succeeded in contacting the dead. Third point to make observation of these, this event Samuel's dialogue contains allusions to a prior interchange between Saul and Samuel. Allusions that would have been appropriate only for the real Samuel to have made, to bring up, to relate to in this event. And lastly, fourth, uh, Samuel's role and message as a prophet, so much a part of his ministry in life, was unchanged in his encounter with Saul from the grave. Another way to look at chapter 28 and verse 12 is to consider that it was not the skill of the medium, but rather a unique act of God that brought Saul into contact with Samuel. It could have been that the medium did not possess the capacity to disturb a dead saint, but God, as a sign of his grace, perhaps permitted Saul to have one last encounter with the prophet who had played such a determinative role in the king's career. Either way, we have Samuel here in the spirit. The medium knows that Saul is the disguised visitor. and continues in verse 13. The king assures her again, Do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. Satisfied that he is finally getting some traction, Saul reassures the medium, seeking to know what she sees. That Saul asked the medium what she could see suggests Saul himself has been prevented from viewing the spirit up to this point, though he was able to speak to Samuel directly as we'll see in the coming verses. 
Look at verse 14. He said to her, that is Saul, to the medium, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Again, Saul doesn't yet see Samuel. Her description of and reference to Samuel's prophetic robe is ironic and foreboding. It recalls how Saul tore Samuel's robe as we looked at in chapter 15, an incident that occasioned the second part of Samuel's decree of judgment against Saul. The kingdom is torn from you, a message that he is going to soon repeat in the coming verses. The prophet Samuel, he is here. So what does Saul do? I'm going to bow down and worship Samuel. What is he doing? Uh, He's going to worship Samuel? Saul brought him up from Sheol, so now he's going to show respect to Samuel as God's prophet. Saul's just used a medium, and now he humbles himself. This is indeed a strange section of Scripture, not so much of Scripture, but strange behavior of a disobedient man. It's not strange that Samuel could come back at the bidding and allowance of God. Uh, Keep in mind, on the Mount of Transfiguration, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 3, Moses and Elijah... They appeared with Christ, just as the disciples recognized them as Moses and Elijah. Saul here recognizes the visual appearance of Samuel, who now speaks to Saul in verse 15. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answers, potentially with a bit of a complaint in his voice. I'm greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. Interesting that he didn't mention the Urim. He doesn't have any prophets. He killed them all off, the priests of Nob. He doesn't answer either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may make known to me what I should do. Ungodly men do strange things. When Samuel was living... Saul did not seek out Samuel to know what God wanted him to do and then go do it and obey it. Now in a panic situation, Saul is desperate to be told, just tell me what to do. My life is on the line. And maybe some of you are in that same position today, or maybe you think you are. Some believers are convinced that they're in Saul's shoes. They're cut off from God's presence, doomed to his silence forever under his frown. One can understand why believers in Jesus might draw such conclusions. God's presence does sometimes seem distant. Sometimes he has seemed to cast them off. Sometimes God leaves us in our affliction so long we're tempted to say, He's forsaken me. Do we not read this in the book of Psalms? The Bible acknowledges that such conditions can prevail in the lives of God's people. The Bible recognizes that someone can be, shall we say, objectively forsaken by God as was Saul, and that others can seem to be forsaken or fear that they may have been. Have we any clues to help us distinguish? Are we actually, or is the Lord sanctifying me? How do we distinguish from one situation to the other? Look at one point in the book of Psalm, chapter 13. Just jot it down in your margin, in your notes. We read, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, O Lord, Will you hide your face from me? Sounds like a man who has been abandoned by the Lord, right? But notice what happens as the psalm continues. What does he say? Since he thinks Yahweh has forgotten him, has hidden his face, or could we say turned away from him? 
Does he turn to necromancers and check his horoscopes? Of course not. After his four, how long, how long, how long, O Lord, how long, he prays, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God, in verse 3. You see what's happening there in that Psalm 13? When believers are terrified at God's absence, they instinctively turn to the God they think has forsaken them, and they complain to him about their situation. And they go on having dealings with this God Almighty, crying to this God to answer because they have nowhere else to go. And so they keep clinging to him. That is what the believer does. Psalm 88, just jot that down. It's almost as bleak as chapter 28 of 1 Samuel. That psalm does not have a positive ending with confidence in Yahweh's deliverance and favor. The faithful man's anguish is still unrelieved and unanswered at the end of his prayer. In verses 14 through 18 of Psalm 88, he's still speaking to Yahweh about it. Keep that in mind. Even though he doesn't have an answer, he's still going to the one who will give an answer in his time. We continue in 1 Samuel 28, verse 16. Samuel said in answer to Saul, who was airing his complaints, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? Could there be a more frightening statement, any more awful thing to hear than this prophet who comes back from the grave to tell you that the Lord has become your enemy, your adversary? Saul's problem is not with the Philistines. They're not the adversary Saul should be worried about. The Lord has become Saul's adversary, and there is no escape. Saul is indeed destined for doom. Look at verse 17. The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, in verse 18, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Saul wanted to know what the Lord had to say. Well, what's the Lord's message? You're a dead man. Your sons are a dead man, are dead men. The armies of Israel, it's a defeated army. Samuel is related, his message, back to Saul's unfaithfulness, as we read in verse 18, as you did not obey the Lord, did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you today. This is where we started this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Just recall to mind, verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. And where has Saul's rebellion against the Lord led? To a medium in the realm of divination. Chapter 15 continued, And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Remember also verse 16 of chapter 15, you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Believer, unbeliever, we sit here, stand here today with God's revealed word in our own laps or on a screen, however you might be reading it this morning. Have you or I rejected God's word? Are we living faithfully according to it? As we learn from chapter 28, 
It's now time for Saul's reign to end and how sad the consequences of rebellion is as the sin of divination. We like to think that this one little sin is as far as it'll go. I've got it under control. We don't think we're capable of murder, but it starts out with idolatry or adultery or embezzlement or drunkenness or lying to others, deceiving. But surely, no, I wouldn't commit murder. I've got this under control. We try to isolate our sin on its own and just kind of set it aside. I'll enjoy this one sin But that one I'll surely avoid. And this is where we need to realize how sin consumes a person and how how it has consumed Saul. Disobedience, as it continues, further reveals one's true character. Saul, a man who did not do what God told him to do, didn't think that one act of rebellion. I spared Agag and the best of the animals, but you know, I was 99% obedient. I mean, that kind of, that's a pretty high percentage. That one Failure to obey God would put him in divination's company. And yet we're surprised as we sit here this morning and come to chapter 28 and find Saul going to a medium to call up someone from the dead so he can find out what he should do. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. The sinfulness of sin should put the fear of God into each and every one of us. Sin is sin. You can talk about differences between sins, but sin is sin. Do not diminish it or its consequences. The royal line of Saul will come to an end. Those who could be the royal heirs will die with Saul on the battlefield. Within the next 24 hours, it'll be all over. Saul will be in the grave. Saul's sons will be in the grave. The armies of Israel will have suffered a crushing defeat. Samuel disappears. and The seance ends. Verse 20. Then Saul immediately fell full length upon the ground and was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. Also, there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or night. What a miserable end is Saul's life. He can't even find relief in the answer that he finally received, delivered from God through Samuel. We find Saul more miserable than he was before. He falls on the ground. He's stricken by great fear. Because of the words of Samuel, there's no strength in him. He hasn't eaten. Verse 21, the woman came to Saul, saw that he was terrified, and said to him, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you, and I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to your words which you spoke to me. Verse 22, so now also please listen to the voice of your maidservant, and let me set a piece of bread before you that you may eat and have strength when you go on your way. The medium counsels Saul to eat, to be strengthened, Consider the contrast between this scene that we have here uh, following Saul's final meeting with Samuel and his first meeting with the prophet. What happened on the first meeting in chapter 9? Samuel invited Saul to share a meal with him in preparation for his anointing as king. And here, on this final occasion, it is a medium who invites Saul to eat right after Samuel has announced his impending death. Verse 23, Saul refused He said, I will not eat. However, his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to them. So he arose from the ground and sat on the futon, the bed, the couch to recline. The woman had a fattened calf in the house. She quickly slaughtered it. She took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread from it. Again, it's possible that Saul had taken another foolish vow to fast until the battle had concluded or until he had gotten an answer. Saul initially refuses the food offered, but she prepares the meal, includes meat 
a rare meal, fit for a king. Yet Saul continues in his vacillation, I won't eat. And then he eats. His servants are successful in getting him off the floor to at least recline, get up off the floor and eat some food. We conclude in verse 25. She brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. Now we're ready to study chapter 29 and 30. As the Lord delivers David from his dilemma, in stark contrast to being shown how wretchedly miserable it truly is for Samuel, for Saul, for Saul to be abandoned by God as a consequence of his lifelong habit of disobedient rebellion. God's decree of judgment against Saul is seemingly delayed over many years, but it finally arrives. As Saul's demise approaches, he first experiences God's silence, an appropriate punishment for one who has failed to carry out God's orders and who later even killed the Lord's priestly mediators from the city of Nob. As Saul disobeys the Lord one last time by consulting an outlawed medium, the Lord finally speaks at Saul's request through the prophet Samuel. If Saul somehow thinks he's going to receive guidance or consolation from Samuel, he is and has been quite mistaken. Samuel reminds Saul of his sin and of God's decree of judgment to be fulfilled on the very next day you're about to die. Saul's experience is a sober reminder to you and I, even as we are here this morning, that God's word is reliable. His unconditional decree of judgment is certain of fulfillment. Just a handful of observations to note. Disobedience may be masked from others by isolated obedience to God. Disobedience may be masked from others by isolated obedience to God. Saul attempted to publicly remove the mediums and spiritists from Israel, but desperate Saul didn't obey the Lord in the dark of night. Another contradiction in Saul's life. An act of obedience may blur the picture, veiling the disobedience. Publicly, Israel may have observed Saul, concluded that he was jealous for the Lord. Wow, what a godly man. Look at him getting rid of the spiritists and mediums. But Saul's private life is characterized by repeated disobedience to the Lord. Secondly, God does not respond to the call of the disobedient. We saw that in verse 6. He had inquired of the Lord, but the day of opportunity had passed. You need to call upon the Lord while he is near. You must obey on the Lord's timetable, not yours. Some soothe their guilty conscience by claiming, they'll trust the Lord someday, probably on my deathbed. The Lord does not guarantee tomorrow for any one of us. Today is the day for repentant obedience, not excuse-making or idolatry. And there were times in Saul's life where there was opportunity. God said he had opportunity. Samuel reminded Saul of the wasted opportunities. If you had done this, God would have blessed you. It's a terrible thing to delude yourself into thinking, well, I can ignore the Lord, I can do what I believe, but I'll call upon the Lord later. And he's obligated to answer me because I've obeyed in the past. That's a dangerous place to be, folks. You can't put the Lord in a box and pull him out when you become desperate and need his deliverance. You and I must never lose the proper reverence for God. He is the Lord, and he must be obeyed at all times, in all circumstances. It's only because of his grace and his mercy that you can go to him, that you can come to the throne of grace and find help in time of need. And Saul, again, is such a sad example I believe, and of, of an unbeliever who has rejected the opportunities the Lord has given him. Thirdly, pressure reveals character. Uh, 
common axiom. You need pressure in your life, trials, difficulties to develop your character. You must give thanks to God for these trials and difficulties because they are agents of his sanctifying work in your life. Be thankful for these trials and difficulties. They also reveal your true character. You are revealed for what you are. Under pressure, Saul's character is revealed as the king of God's chosen people, Israel. He's willing to go to an instrument of demons just to get an answer. He's under pressure, and he once again chooses disobedience. Fourthly, keep in mind that there is no little disobedience. Well, it was just a cookie out of the jar. I didn't kill anybody. There is no little disobedience. Samuel reminds Saul, as you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek. This wasn't a minor disobedience. Saul was to kill all the Amalekites, yet he saved King Agag. Saul was to destroy everything, yet he kept the best of the flocks. And his rationale? Well, the people did it, and besides, we can use the spoils for a sacrifice to cover for my disobedience, right? No. Do not embrace the deceptiveness of sin. Small or respectable sins, they often lead to greater levels and frequencies of sin. The believer does make the decision to sin or not, but you don't determine its severity. You can't control the consequences. Sin is always a big deal before God, and Saul could not have conceived that this whole, his whole position as king would be lost by that one Little disobedience? It's all disobedience. Fifth, sin reduces us to misery and ruin, and that's where we find David. The consequences and the results of a lifelong practice of disobedience leads to misery and ruin. Saul immediately fell length, full length upon the ground and was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. No strength. What a miserable end for a king. A king, the man God said would do such great things for him if he would only obey. Yet our sin catches up to us by looking like it'll give us something good, but it always destroys us. Perhaps you've seen the pictures of someone who has gotten into drugs, fentanyl, meth, something like that. They show the before picture on one side, handsome, beautiful woman, beautiful man, and they show him or her after their drug abuse the contrasting photos. The contrast is almost unbelievable. Is it really the same person on either side? Did they start out with drawn faces, sunken eyes, missing teeth? Of course not. But you take a small amount of this chemical, alcohol, hard drugs, whatever it is, makes you feel good. Suddenly you're deceived into thinking you're better at what you do. Or you can at least cope with life when you have the chemical. But that's the way sin works. The wages of sin is not a better life. The book of Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. It comes with ruin and destruction. With what we know, why would anyone choose sin of disobeying the clear commands of God? The patterns of sin are on full display here in Saul, who now pays the price for his rebellion in misery and ruin. And lastly, it is not enough to start well. You have to finish well. Saul began well. He seemed to have humility. He was hiding among the baggage while the lots were cast for him to be presented as king. One could say Saul started well. He had great potential, but he didn't finish well. 
the word of the Lord will be fulfilled. So when we consider the pending battle coming up in chapter 31, Saul will die, as God said. His sons will die. Israel's army will be destroyed. What a price. What a price sin demands of us. What consequences it brings. Let's close in prayer. Father Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Allow the unfolding of the life of Saul, of a life of wasted potential, opportunities discarded. May this history sober each and every one of us to walk carefully, abiding in Christ. Help us to live in constant communion with you, our guide, trusting your provision of timely grace, timely guidance when it's needed. Help us to set aside the worry, the fear of those things we don't know or can't control. Help us to abide and grow in the true knowledge of Christ, the one who knows our every need. Lord, help us to take these lessons to heart, the ugliness of sin, the awfulness of sin, the delusion of sin. How sad that we too would delude ourselves into thinking that our sin could never be, well, that serious or that our sin would never bring those kinds of consequences. Lord, we need to see the sinfulness of sin. To see sin as you see it. It's a holy God, righteous in all your ways. Help us to see sin as the awful, horrible thing that it is. Even what we would think of this or that minor sin, actually an act of rebellion against you, a holy and living God. Father, that we might hate sin and despise it, and flee from it, and work in us. Lord, we thank you for your grace toward all, even as you raised up David, to be the servant that you would use in great and mighty ways. I thank you for the trials and difficulties in his life that strengthened him to be all the more a man after God's own heart. Lord, we pray that for ourselves as well, that we may take these lessons to heart. May we desire that we too would be strengthened to be more and more men and women after God's own heart. Thank you, Lord, for your great blessings upon us, for your every provision. May we take advantage of those blessings and commit ourselves to even greater faithfulness in our lives and the days of the week before us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.